secret building trades group chat on Twitter, which is about all I use Twitter for. I'm sorry, X. It's called X now. I'd be sorry. The only thing I use X for is uh, is secret building trades uh, group chat. Uh, Armando on there, shout out Armando, uh, had a fucking metal show up the street. And I was like, hype, fucking going to get off work on Friday, go out to the fucking show. It's going to be great. And I texted him that morning. I'm like, bro, fucking ready to go. Going to be a great show tonight. He's like, it was last night, man. You guys are stupid asses. Yeah. So, you know, I I said to myself, I still want to go see a show. So I did something I hadn't done in like 10 years. I just opened up Oh My Rockness. Oh My Rockness rules. And I just found, we like found a few shows that look good and like listened to a couple songs off of it. And we ended up at a great show. It was awesome. There's... Too many awesome shows in New York. It's part of the problem. Just good movies and shows every night. Good movies, man. We've been on the movies kick for a long time. We're big fans of the Nighthawk cinema. Did you see Oppenheimer? Yeah, I saw Oppenheimer and Barbie. Oppenheimer, yeah, I think they're. I think they're both great. I didn't see Barbie. I really should. You see should. Barbie. You should. A lot of my coworkers have seen Barbie. Like, yo, my wife took me to see Barbie. Shit was cool. It was cool. (laughs) Everybody loves Barbie. It, it was a little bit. Um, I don't know if I'm like quite as nihilistic about feminism as Greta Gerwig is, mm. but I think it's uh, it's good to, you know, you'll have to see it. But it's it, to me, it seems like a pretty nihilistic critique of like the political aspirations of feminism. Really, it's like a post-feminist movie. Yes, interesting. Yeah, um, and I and I know that's not like a a unique hot take or something, but I don't know if people are. I don't know if everyone sees it that way, but you'll ha- I want to I want to hear your opinion. Yeah, I'll I'll go see it. I I think I'll go see it at some point. I want to hear Rax's opinion if there's oh. going to be a low culture boil about it. I'm not sure they're going to do a whole episode about it, but I've got her takes on it. She's got good takes. All right, I'll tell her that she should. She should do one on yeah, Barbie. definitely. But Oppenheimer, man, I thought it was about as good as you could possibly expect to have, like a big budget Christopher Nolan movie. Definitely, I I hate that guy. I don't, I don't want to say I hate him. I do see all of his movies, and I kind of enjoy watching them. But usually, I strongly don't like what he's doing. Yeah. And in this one, I I did enjoy it. I liked that. Um, it 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 reduces the moral level of what he did to. Just personally, yeah. how, wh- why he became this military man yeah. through the politics of anti-fascism, basically. Right, right, right. And why that justified uh, an alliance with the U.S. government and why he was wrong. Yeah. And these are and why very difficult him. questions. And why, why it destroyed him, too. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, like he loses, of course, like the central drama is, is him losing his security clearance, but... You know, so I looked at the history subsequent to that, and like he was still a bit of a public intellectual after that, but like his career was destroyed as a scientist, and um, you know he grapples, of course, with like the weight the weight of this decision that he made to make this thing happen, and uh, I thought it did a really good job of that. I, f- I feel like maybe Oppenheimer two, which they'll never make, but maybe <laughs> something on. <laughs> On like uh, on the same wavelength as Oppenheimer, you could do one about like Marcuse working for the OSS or something. Oh, that'd be Call awesome. It Marcuse, you know, and it's about him grappling with like anti-fascism pulls him into these like networks of American intelligence that eventually yes. turn into the CIA. So Marcuse Nolan, was Marcuse. done kind of dirty by that Coen Brothers movie. Oh, the one Hail Caesar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it, it portrays him as a secret Stalinist, and yeah. if, you know, I that just you know, the Coen brothers are obviously very smart that they know who Marcuse is. The but politics <laughs> of that movie Marcuse were was incoherent, yeah. man. I Marcuse was, was not trying to uh, launder money to the Soviet <laughs> Union. No, no. Coen brothers should have gotten like somebody like Jasper Burns to be a consultant right. on it. Or I'm trying to think of somebody that would be like a, like a make a mocker. Eric John Russell, Eric John Russell. Yeah. Eric John Russell. And then it could have been like some like debordist shit. And that there. would be like Woody Harrelson hiring Anton Chigurh, <laughs> bringing Eric John Russell into the, the Coen brothers industry. I think, I think it's about time for Eric John Russell to start thinking about a career in Hollywood. After the I strikes, agree. after the I strikes agree. are over, of course. No, he's going to do it now. <laughs> All right. Well, All today right. we're going to talk. Uh, well, we're going to take li- listener questions today, and we've got some other stuff to talk about. But maybe the questions will just 
help us talk about everything. Yeah, we haven't done a uh, old-fashioned news episode in a while, and it's, uh, I think, time to do a little temperature check. And I don't mean that just in terms of the climate. I mean, how do we it's feel hot. about things that are happening? Well, we could start with the climate. Yeah, we had a question about the climate. All these questions Andy got from uh, Discord. So if you're just a listener and you're not a patron, know that every once in a while we do do these where we pull questions off Discord and you can uh, interact with us that way and we'll answer your question. It'll be really nice. Well, you should be checking Discord more, but... I, I'm always checking it. Andy's always checking. I but I get never, I get a lot of questions for you, and I like uh, uh, maybe talk to him on Twitter. <laughs> I apologize. Like uh, I just in every single instance where I try to use Discord, it's just infuriates me, and I fucking hate it. And it's yeah. also like a a form of social media that I think I'm too old for. Like I'm yeah. I feel like I'm too old to like sit on a dedicated server and like type out long passages of stuff. So I apologize for my absence from yeah. the discord, but I'm old. Remember I'm old, but that is, that is a way to chat with us. You can also message me on Patreon. And um, you can tweet at me on, uh, yeah. on X and I'm, we'll try I'm, to get to it, but we are, uh, Sean is not as on the laptop all day as I am. <laughs> well, it's hard to have the laptop out there when you're right. hanging anodes and whatever, dude, Crazy news came down today. I'm like, we're going to find out tomorrow because this company that I'm working for, that's a big meeting. They're trying to figure out what to do with us. We are like kicking ass on this big, awesome resiliency job, doing awesome. I fell in with this gang. I shaped this job. and It's like the best job I've ever had in my entire life. I mean, hell, it's fucking, what time is it right now? It's 2.15 and I'm sitting here. Uh, at Andy's house already podcasting after a day's worth of work. But what's coming down the pipe is that we are doing the job too fast. But there's a whole other phase of the job that's going to last literally years, like doing what we do now, but for like three years. And so there's a gap that we need to make up in between like the two months before we finish this job and then the like eight months before this next, next aspect of the job will happen. So either I'm going to be employed at the best job I've ever had in my entire life for the next two months, or if they can find some sweet like time and material shit for us to do in between that, I'm going to be on the best job of my life for fucking years, like at least two to three years, if not four years. Cool. Just living the fucking dream. So fingers crossed out there. I mean, I'll know. Hanging anodes, whatever those are. Hanging anodes, dude. Anti-corrosion protection. All my anti-corrosion head sound off in the comments <laughs> now nah, it's great it's great fucking work so i'm really hoping that uh, i can just like ride it out and fucking start work at 6 a.m work through lunch and knock off at 1 p.m every single day for the next several years i hope Lots so of time too. to podcast this is a good time to podcast i feel great ready to, to go podcast. last time we recorded it was like what 9 a.m 10 a.m or yeah. something and I fucked up the recording, and I just like. Did you on the yeah? Times Square I, one? I I just used the wrong. I was like talking through a mic that anyway. It sorry about the audio quality for that, but uh, two p.m. is good. Up the audio for once. Oh uh, no! <laughs> I've done it a couple times this summer, but I think we're good to go now. We're good to go. We're good to and go. And here's a question from Otto La Milieu Inferior. Yeah. Uh, it's the hottest summer on record, he says. I just want to ask how to ward off the despair. It's paralyzing and hard to see any hope when all signs point towards catastrophe. Sorry for depressing question. And here's another depressing question from Skani Kami. Mm. Can I get some materially rooted utopian speculation for our dark times? Making whatever favorable assumptions you want, what leaps of progress will be made in the next 5, 10, 15 years to achieve and defend a worldwide communist revolution? Mm. So the communist revolution is happening in this question. In and five, then, 10, right. or 25 years. And also stave off ecological catastrophe and slowly unwind the myriad contradictions of the 21st century global capitalism. Oof. So I guess we'll start with a depressing one first. How do well, they're asking off? us to not be depressing. Otto is saying how to not be depressed about all this stuff, how to ward off the despair. And then Sconey Kami is talking about the potential for something good to come out of all this chaos. Um, I don't know. Do you want to tackle Otto's question? Because I'll be quite honest with you with the, um, the stuff, particularly about the oceans heating up. Yeah. Um, I, 
it's very, very depressing, very black pilling. Another reason to not look at X is there's just people always post these charts that are just horrifying. And in the comments, it used to be people in the comments would be like, well, the chart's not as bad if you look at this axis or whatever. But with these ones, everyone's just like, uh, Uh, yeah. Yeah, I see that. And then I see the heat maps of the ocean. And then I hear about... um, the coral in Florida. I hear about the um, the mass die off of uh, the fishes and other ocean wildlife, and uh, maybe I'm the one that needs a, you know, <laughs> some tips on how to keep from despairing. I think, unfortunately, and I've you know, luckily I'm working right now and I have a lot of other things going on in my life. I've been kind of keeping my head in the sand with that stuff because what can we do at this point? You know, like we're starting to see the sorts of things that. Back in the 90s, you know, liberal politicians and socialists and others were like, we got to get ahead of this or things are going to get really bad. And, you know, of course, the ruling class dithered on it for uh, decades. And, you know, just these last few years, I think we've realized that uh, it's here, right? The consequences of capital uh, are here now. And we're beginning to live through the Anthropocene or the capital scene, whatever you want to call it. And um, it's shocking. The wildfires are shocking. Um, the massive heat wave down south is shocking, too. I wonder if um, there's really much of anything we can do at this point in time except just continue what we've been doing. You'd like to think that Americans, and America is, of course, at the nexus of capitalist power, uh, Americans would be shocked by this, ones who were maybe agnostic on climate change or ones who believed it was fake or it didn't matter, that they would change their minds all of a sudden. But I've seen a lot of people doubling down on it and saying, like, this is the next big thing that the, you know, the elites want us to be scared of and that a little bit of heat never hurt anybody and that who needs oceans anyways? <laughs> we, we don't breathe water. It's, I don't know. It, it's a tough one, man. What do you think, Andy? Warding off despair. Well, I mean, the chaos that the political chaos that is caused by global warming is already here and has been here for at least a decade. I mean, uh, the the, you could you could say like, oh, the, the war in Syria is theoretically related, but there's more recent conflicts that are very directly related. Like this article you posted about uh, what's going on in Niger. Yeah. Um, part of it's just like, oh, there's like a. Uh, Islamist civil war in part of Niger that U.S. and American troops are fighting that are caught that is caused by climate change. Yeah, and that's just like an afterthought in the article. Yeah. Um. So yeah, the this stuff is already here. Um, we are in the Northeast, which is you know has had like floods and hurricanes hit, but for the most part is unaffected. We had like that weather <laughs> that smog come in, yeah. but so. At times up here, it feels like we're somewhat in a bubble or protected. Um, so it's, it, you know, the anxiety comes from like reading Twitter. Yeah. Um, or the paper. But also I think, you know, everyone knows what that, what exists now, the stability that we have now, whatever that is, is not going to last. And that affects people in a lot of ways that they might not even realize yeah. because we're we're animals and we like feel when like things are changing and we Mm -hmm. have that anxiety and it makes us think in different ways. And, um, it could, to, to put a, to try to be positive about it means like, well, I have to think about surviving in a way that's different than the way I think about surviving now. Mm. And the way we survive now, yeah, Yeah. right. The way we survive now is, um, you know, do our part in this great machine that is causing the climate change. And we might have to continue to do that in the short term, but in the long term, we got to think about what it would mean if supply chains break down. I'm not saying that we have to have a a bug out bag and a plan or whatever, but the future does look more like things falling apart than things stabilizing and progressing to a better future. And the the plans of the techno utopians and optimists are just like, who believes in Falk anymore? Like it's you know what's fu- oh, fully automated yeah. luxury communism right yeah. like these these ideas are that's totally not discredited a, you know not a meme not gonna that, that lasted much past well because it was based on corbin and sanders winning right and yeah. they didn't and then you know when, when you do see socialists winning in like south america or something they just can't do what they're you know uh 
in Colombia and in Chile, uh, they're just not able to do what they want to, what, uh, what needs to be done. Like, yeah. because the, um, industrial capitalism is in the driver's seat and the politicians are just bureaucrats basically serving yeah. the need for capital expansion. And where a lot of these sort of, uh, left populist movements are rising are in places that are based largely on extraction anyways. Right. So you have like the immediate thing in a place like Chile, like, you know, much of their economy is based on pulling ores and stuff out of the ground. It's like, how does that relate to the rest of things? Well, they certainly need that stuff to, to export that stuff in order for people to survive. So there's like real material constraints upon what's possible in bourgeois politics. And you're right. It's um, if we look at things in the longer term, it's very scary. New York has had great weather for the last few weeks been very very comfortable and nice but i know that people who have been working down south hasn't been um great at all 115 degree temperatures and shit like that if you think about this in in longer terms you know for much of the existence of human beings uh it was a kind of mad scramble to try to like get enough food and to get shelter and to come together with people in order to have a life expectancy of, if you made it past childhood, maybe like 40 or 50 years old. And I'm not saying we're going back to that, but I think like the real high point of human civilization where the stability um, and the prosperity that we all have expected to have in our lives can be taken for granted, I think is, uh, is over at this point in time. And I think like Andy said, that means that we need to start um, thinking more practically about um, survival in a way that doesn't, um, you know, simply involve going to work and getting up and taking care of our individual people in our lives. We need to start thinking proactively, I think, about some sort of preparation, let's say. Yeah, but um, not, like, the, the way right-wingers have tended to think about this is, is very individual, like, the, based on the family, based on your own personal bunker, and that's just not going to work. Like, you just no. can't stockpile enough resources to, like, live a good life in, uh, in a basement. So... I, I have, uh, I, you know, from the pandemic, you know, you saw um, uh, uh, not, you did not see the worst in people coming out for the most part. Yeah. Besides like asshole anti-lockdown protesters and yeah. anti-maskers and that kind of stuff who are a pretty marginal group. What you saw was an explosion of mutual aid, a massive uh, uprising around class and racial justice issues. A real feeling of solidarity um, across society right. with frontline workers. And, and that was a response to a crisis. Yeah. Um, not only the ongoing crisis of the police murdering black people, but the current crisis of being asked to work and get COVID and die um, while everything else is shut down. Uh, and so... Uh, when you look at uh, when there's major earthquakes and hurricanes and uh, these natural disasters that are or aren't related to climate change, um, people are capable of doing amazing things. And the harder the disaster, the more working class people like yourself who know how to build things mm. and like construct things and help people are going to be called away from the needs of the economy and towards the needs of the people. And yeah. The problem is like, I mean, the thing that I'm really worried about is warlordism, either yeah. from like factions of the military or the state, um, or just like like what we're reading about Niger, ISIS, yeah. and Al Qaeda or whatever. But how do you how do you stop warlordism, right? Because warlordism, I think, is a real concern, like you said, and we're already starting to see it. I mean, in civil wars across uh, the world, I think that this tracks with. What needs to be done tracks with something that I've been talking about for like over a year at this point in time, which is there was the old conception of the socialist movement through the 19th and into the 20th century where it was about setting the preconditions for working class governance over society in a political sense, right? Um, that was considered to be a political movement where the working class through democracy would uh, capture power, uh, would reform or destroy the state, and be able to act politically, um, not just in one country, but of course around the world, uh, in order to take the economy into our hands. It's not clear to me that there is a political solution that's going to arise in the amount of time <laughs> necessary in order for there to be like a uh, democratic or let's say like political overcoming of uh, the power of capital to create 
uh, but also destroy. So what that leads us to then is, can we perhaps imagine this conception of working the working class, which is to say all of us, uh, not just in the U.S., but everywhere, taking seriously the responsibility to take production, uh, to take society into our own hands uh, and run it democratically and run it fairly and run it um, uh, without exploitation. If that's going to happen in a prepper type scenario, then we need to start thinking about where we land in social production. Like where is it within the material substrate of capitalist production do we land? Maybe we're white collar, maybe we're blue collar, maybe we're pink collar, right? But in each one of these instances, we are tied to like literally, not just on the shop floor, but up and down supply chains uh, all over the place, hundreds and thousands of other workers, like directly through our labor or indirectly through the market. What does it mean to try to start to imagine that that being the basis for stopping warlordism, you know, when, when, or, or stopping um, the accumulation of capital uh, on the terms of capital. What would it mean to like start to prepare ourselves for when supply chains start to fall, you know, when they start to break up because of natural catastrophes or political disasters, we take responsibility for making sure that the necessary goods that people need continue to flow, that they're being created in a certain way, that they're being distributed, and then ultimately they're getting to where they need to be. This is like an alternative vision. It's like a prepper communist sort of vision where we would have to seize, we'd have to take these supply chains, take the productive apparatus out of the hands of capitalists and warlords and politicians. Um, yeah, and warlords already themselves. rule in a sense. Like, you know, the Chiquita Banana is a is like a warlord cartel in a oh, sense. Oh, sure. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. The state is just a big gang, and uh, and so like obviously the like this sort of territorial question of like smaller gangs taking over, which is a huge issue in like throughout Latin America, um, Central America, and Ecuador, Mexico. Like uh, th- these questions are not theoretical there, right? Um, and uh, so, and like a study of those situations, I do not think is very optimistic. Um, but uh, I, I will say that what is optimistic is like they are, they are part of the state. You know, they work with the police. Uh, they might have antagon- antagonistic relations at a certain at certain junctures, but also they couldn't exist without the state, without capital. They are like a they are part of the supply chain themselves, mm-hmm. um, especially when we're talking about drugs. So, uh, so when the state collapses, that makes them more dangerous, but it also threatens their legitimacy in a certain way. Um, you know, this is too abstract a concept, but what I'm, what I'm getting to is like, as revolutionaries, we do think that this world as it exists needs to end Mm -hmm. and it is ending. It is. And the question is, the question is like, do we have any faith left in humanity to, uh, survive and do something just in as it ends this is where my despair ends and my uh, cautious optimism begins because i do have faith in humanity and i don't think that we're uh seeing the end of humanity maybe we're certainly like turning the page on a certain type of civilization but i believe humans are going to get out of this uh one way or the other to like put a finer point on the on what i was trying to say like imagine your hometown wherever that is if it's in the united states if it's in the midwest it's in the uh, pacific northwest and wherever or say you're not in the united states you're in europe or you're in uh, latin america just imagine if there is some sort of breakdown which we're starting to see in places like Syria, across Africa and the Sahel, uh, and Latin America, as Andy pointed out, who would be in a position in your region, in your local area, to take control and to take charge of not just politics, but also production? Most likely, it would be your local gentry, right? Like, the seeds of warlordism are basically like the uh, Better Business Bureau or the Chamber of Commerce of, like, your local like medium-sized town or city right like those are the people that naturally coming out of the political economy that we have right now would be in the position to become warlords so how would it how would we imagine a way to stop that it would have to be popular power on that regional level and taking away the tools necessary in order 
for warlords to arise and uh, bring authoritarian measures or something that probably looks like war capitalism, right? Like on a certain level, like the equivalent of war communism in the Civil War period um, in Russia, but in capitalist terms, barracks capitalism, mm -hmm. I guess you would call it. How do you stop that from happening? Well, you have to start thinking holistically about the wellspring of regional or local ruling class power and it's often these like small to medium-sized businesses that are tied into like larger networks of capital so that's a place where we could start imagining like how do we make sure that these local bourgeoisie and petty bourgeoisie don't end up becoming the power brokers when you know our mm -hmm. region is cut off from the rest of the country for a few i think that's months. especially true in terms of like um like distribution centers like hunts point or something like yeah. where like the food gets into a city is going to become incredibly crucial right so if we were if we were to imagine ourselves and if you work in food or you work in transportation or logistics or whatever you are on the front lines of this how would we imagine uh, a capacity to stop the monopolization of say all the food of our particular region uh by some sort of like capitalist petty powers that would come in and, and basically hold that over everybody's head. How could we popularize and democratize, dare I say, even communize, you know, the distribution of that stuff before it gets to the point where we're being ruled by like the local car dealership guy? I, th I think the answer to that is just the, the, the drivers and the people who work in those places are going to want to get food to people where they live or, you know, just, they just know like, oh, this neighborhood needs food. And so that that is an essential job that people are going to want to do. Um, the question is, will they be able to do it? Will it be choked off by the the state or whatever, or like local warlord? Anyway, we're getting to sci-fi territory. Yeah, but, 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 but I want to say, though, like, and this is maybe ties into the second part of the question, which is about like 5, 10, 20 years um, how to achieve and defend a worldwide communist revolution, stave off ecological catastrophe, yada, yada, yada. I mean, I think that it's, it's heartening to say that, like, given that situation, the people of, like, a regional economy would come together and stop the warlords, that people would have basic sort of solidarity that you see in disaster situations like Katrina or uh, Hurricane Sandy or whatever. And I think by and large that, you know, that would track. I think that that would happen. But I think it'd be important for us maybe sooner rather than later before the real true chaos starts to come down the pipe to try to imagine ways that, that, that these efforts can be systematized in such a way that we're not just relying on spontaneous action. That, like, say, maybe in each town there's, like, several people. Maybe they listen to this podcast. Maybe they're DSA or whatever who are beginning to think about and preparing themselves for the situation as it arises and can systematize not just a local response among the working class but also connect to people in different areas with the same sort of program. Right. I agree. I would just say, uh, adding to that, like, no matter where you are in the uh, in the production process, um, it is good to just think about like, well, we're going to see some really serious challenges and, and what are my skills and how am I going to confront these challenges? And if your initial thought is like, well, I'm just going to kill myself or something like that, uh, I don't blame you for thinking that way, but maybe the situation needs you. Maybe uh, yeah. things could turn out differently if you had the attitude of, I am... I have these resources, I have this network, I have these skills, and I am going to try to be strong and enter this situation and try to turn it towards uh, something like mutual aid or right. something like um, de-arming the people who want to you know, hoard goods or capital or whatever. And it may not be possible, but we don't know yet. So yeah. um, just, you know, when, when you see a crisis situation, just remember, like, if you appear strong and confident and like there's a silver lining in the situation other people will be emboldened to feel that way too yeah and maybe you feel alienated maybe you feel strongly this general malaise which i think is set upon like all of at least western uh societies but certainly china too with like the laying flat you know the kids refusing to work and this there's this great and growing sense that humanity is like that forward progress has stopped and we mm -hmm. can talk about all the i have like very like wingnut reasons for why i think that's true but i don't think that it's like accidental that we're all feeling that way kind of at the same time 
I mean, maybe if you feel like you don't fit in and maybe you feel like uh, society has nothing to offer, this is your opportunity to start like living and imagining a way that's differently that, that that's different that would live up to your expectations of what you want society to be. And so maybe this is an opportunity in that sense then for people to fit into slots that they that didn't even exist up until this point in time. Um, on that note, uh, I don't know if you heard while you were out working today, but Mario Tronti passed away. No, R.I.P. One to of a legend. The major theorists of uh, the Operismo in, in Italy in the 60s and 70s. And um, our friends Common Situ posted a very, very depressing interview, oh, no. a recent interview from 2015, actually, called I Am Defeated. I'll put it in the show notes because. Oh. And it's just him saying like, well, you know, we had this revolutionary movement that was defeated. And so I'll read a little bit of it. He's talking about uh, hot, hot autumn in the, in the, well, you'll, you'll see. Okay. Okay. So the, the answer, the, the, the interviewer says, um, are you nostalgic for the revolutions? He says, no, if anything, the 20th century was the century of revolutions, but not only that. Where are the grand ideas, the great literature, the grand politics, the great art? I don't see anything like what the first half of the 20th century produced. When did the explosion of creativity end? In the 60s. Your mm. golden years? That's the irony of history. There was, a, there was a great 20th century and a small 20th century built out on an awareness that it is no longer able to reflect on itself. Mm. Is this a farewell to the idea of progress? These days, progressivism is the thing furthest from myself. I reject the idea that whatever is new is always better and more advanced than what was there before. And the interviewer says, this is one of the inviolable creeds of Marxism. Mm. And he responds, it was the false security of thinking that defeat was only an episode because meanwhile we thought history was on our side. Mm. And now we see how it went, didn't we? So he's got this attitude that capitalism won. Like there was a war between the workers and capital and capitalism won. Um, But, you know, although he's talking about his own defeat, um, he also says capitalism in a way is defeated because without this strong workers movement pushing against capitalism, without this kind of like global balance of power between different ideas, capitalism becomes mo- monstrous. Yeah. And so now we're seeing the the monster of capital completely unchained from uh, its obligations to the masses of the world. Right. Um, and, and, and even any pretense that like there's um, some sort of like golden age on the horizon, right? Yeah, it's all bullshit. Um, so, very depressing interview. But you know, this is this is the attitude of someone who did see, uh, who did like the the first half of the twentieth century are people who believed revolution was coming pretty oh, soon. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, like I've been reading CLR James, and everything he wrote was like the revolution could start tomorrow. Right. You know, and people don't really think that way now. Although it is true, but it's hard to believe that's true now. But what we have to do is uh, as communists. Um, uh, is you know either we can become nihilists or just try to forget about politics, which I don't blame people for doing. No. But if you want to continue to be a communist, you gotta you gotta wonder uh, what is going on in the world right now that points to a better future. Whether yeah. it's like you know the the truckers siding with the people over the warlords or right. or whatever, um, and that's how we have to be thinking that uh, it is possible for humanity to rise to the challenge of survival. Yes, I agree with that 100%. And I think it's it's exactly that monstrousness. It's exactly um, the decadence and like moribund nature of uh, capital these days, <clears throat> at least for the last you know, 10, 15 years, but certainly maybe for the last 40 years or so, uh, that, that, points, uh, that points away from it or that points towards something new arising. And we've been saying that on this podcast for years now at this point in time, waiting and hoping and searching for some sort of new um, social movement, some uh, new social force to arise uh, that will begin to challenge capital. And we haven't seen it yet. But, you know, at the same time, um, dire times call for desperate measures. And so hope springs eternal for me because I do think that, like, if you look across the world stage and you look at how devoid the ruling class is of any conception of how to make life better or to get us out of even this accumulation crisis that we've been in, or certainly the climate crisis as well, the world is screaming out for, civilization is screaming out 
uh, for some sort of universal solution to this problem. And I do believe that communism still is that. It right. still is that. Uh, it's just a matter of connecting um, our very <laughs> scary um, moments, uh, our consciousness right now of collapse and decay with the sort of optimism that people had in the past, with that sort of can-do attitude uh, that people had, say, in the 1960s. And maybe we just have to will it into existence. Maybe we have to fucking vote for um, the Marxist unity group <laughs> to win the DSA convention and uh, you know build the party. Well, I don't think we have to will it into existence. I think that people change very quickly when the, the situations around them change. Yeah. Like, uh, I think Marx has this quote about the Paris Commune where, like, suddenly everybody just does the opposite. Like, the anarchists join the, the forces of order and yeah. then the, and the police join the people and that kind of thing. So people change really quickly. Um, and it's, it's, you know, so, like, you know, I, I'm very black-pilled right now because we just lost this housing struggle here that oh, I, yeah. I, you know, it seemed like something good could have come out of it and it didn't. You know, I think, like, there's a material reason why we lost, which is that, a lot of people in the building just thought like, well, I can get a new place and it'll be better than this place. Yeah. And that might not be an option in the future. In the future, my, your house might be the only place you could live and you're going to have to figure out how to defend it with your neighbors. So people change. But let's move on to another question. Yeah. The next question is from Tony B. Tony uh, B. Who says, at this point, don't we have to put all our chips on a silent takeover from sympathetic comrades within the tech giants if there's any hope for a real revolution? Seems pretty clear that the working class is inert and has nowhere to put revolutionary sentiment if they had any. The barriers to forming workers' parties are too high, and DSA, while doing some good work, has too many people who are interested in the way things are to make truly revolutionary sacrifices. Matt has talked, assuming that's about Matt Chrisman, yeah. has talked about the Carnation Revolution-style takeover from the military, but even the military is relatively powerless without the tech giants that undergird the global capitalist order. So should we try to salt these companies that have the keys to the castle, so to speak? Uh, none of this is meant to degenerate unionization, strike efforts that have been happening. It just seems a, a case of too little, too late to achieve that kind of dra dra uh, drastic reversal we need. And I'll just add one other question to that uh, from, I think, from Magitecker. Revolutionary speaking, the does the internet need to be destroyed? <laughs> so I guess also, that's like the two sides of the question is like, do we take over the internet or, or do destroy we destroy the internet? Um, I think the internet, um, at least the international internet, will probably face some serious disruptions in coming years. Some of those disruptions might be related to the climate. Because remember, it's just all pipes. You know, as a uh, senator from the 90s once said, it's tubes and pipes. There and are whatever. some pipes, but now with Starlink, it's a lot of it's not pipes anymore. Yeah. Oh, that might there might be some pipes involved in that process. Well, you know, we, we could maybe have a big sunstorm coming up, knock a bunch of that shit out. But yeah. I think more likely uh, geopolitics might get in the way of the Internet. Like, I, I don't it's not out of the realm of possibility in the next time, like sometime in the next five to ten years. Uh, just like those oil pipelines that run through the Baltic got blown up, you'll start to see measures by various state or like quasi state actors to start like blowing up fucking um, high fiber cables, whatever, under the ocean. But like, I think that the, uh, the Tony B question is a really interesting one um, because of the importance they put on tech to the economy. Like, I wonder. I wonder what it is about tech that makes it this like very important site of struggle as as Tony understands it. I wish Tony would, Tony B was here to ask him the question because as I see tech, I mean tech. You're talking about the internet. You're talking about um, various apps. You're talking about servers. You're talking about things of that sort. It certainly undergirds much of the modern economy. Uh, certainly much of the way that we interact with each other on a day-to-day -day basis is mediated by tech or whatever. But in terms of like the actual like power base of society, um, I think I'm not sure that tech has the sort of like material importance uh, that other aspects of uh, other industries within the economy have. I certainly think it has a um, like an ideological valence to it. Like, obviously, if you're trying to spread propaganda or you're trying to, like, um, uh, culture jam or whatever it is, certainly tech is an important um, avenue for that. But in terms of, like, 
what would what would capturing tech do for like the working class? Um, I mean, it sort of takes us back to Tronti. Well, say more. The, 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 I mean, the uh, you know Tr- Tronti. Uh, you know, I'm not I, I'm not a, a major scholar of his work. I haven't read too much of it, but I understand that one of his major contributions is the is the the criticism of uh, the neutrality of the machine worker relationship. Okay. That the machines develop as a way to crush class struggle, not as a way to increase productivity that the class can take over and then create a, you know, an, an, auto- uh, an automated utopian society. Right. That actually class struggle involves a struggle against the machines. Yeah. Because uh, both like, like the, the literal machines and the, 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 the great machine of capital that turns workers into cogs within it. Because the machines themselves, that capital compels to be produced or have like the class contradiction and class domination imbued inside of them basically right like that's imprinted on the machine itself i I mean i guess when that comes to the internet i think we do have to see the internet as this uh this way of atomizing and separating and making us more dependent and stupid and de-skilled like the the phone is smart because we aren't but on the on the other hand uh i i most people are pissed off at their phones. They're pissed off that they have to use it so much. They're pissed off at how dependent they are on it. Um, they wish they could get a date the old fashioned way yeah. and not with an app, you know? Right, right. So people I think are ready to move on from the internet, but people are also ready to move on from work and they can't because the, 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 the smartphone isn't, I got a smartphone because I needed it for work, you know? Yeah. Um, so I, I wish I just, I don't actually need it for work. I could have a dumb phone. A lot of like the old timers that I work with have little flip phones and bless their hearts. I think that I, like everybody else, am just as addicted to having a smartphone and be able to like tweet and text and, and surf the internet as uh, anybody else. But, you know, going back to like, um, like state and revolution or even before that uh with marx and Engels, you know the conception was always that it's not enough to to seize the ready-made um instruments of the state of the bourgeois state and yield them for our purposes that in fact like the state needs to be conquered and then smashed and destroyed uh and a dictatorship of the proletariat would be that destruction uh and the building of something new a dictatorship um i think that there was a naivete about how the um, means of production uh, could be seized and used as like a neutral tool in order to build socialism. I think it's like pretty clear from the 20th century, right? That just as the state apparatus needs to be seized and then smashed, um, so too would the productive apparatus. Uh, it's impossible to leave the productive apparatus of humanity untouched because as Andy said, as Tronti said, those machines end up dominating us. Um, what would conquering tech do for us? Like when we, if we were to seed tech, like with communists, with our people, if somehow we were to get uh, Silicon Valley on board, um, what could that actually produce? Um, what sort of change could that produce? I'm unsure, honestly. I don't know what having like a like a communist, uh, well, like a communist cell within tech could possibly do maybe yeah, I mean, except I, to destroy the internet I, I know a lot of like anarchists and communists who have moved on to tech jobs and um and they you know they they think about these things and they organize and uh but i my i i, I don't see any world where the continuation of the internet uh is a positive force uh yeah. i think I don't know if it's possible to destroy. I, you know, I wrote a of course, science fiction short story about like the internet going out and leading to this immediate communization process. Yeah, it's called New York Year Zero. I'll put it in the show notes. But I, uh, a lot of people have told me like it's not possible for the internet to go out, but it might become like less available in certain ways to certain people. Uh, it might become heavily censored. You know, it, yeah. It might be. It might purely exist just for the the military because right. you know Starlink, like DARPAnet. <laughs> right? You know the like SpaceX, not SpaceX. Um, Space Force largely exists to protect uh, the internet for the the military to coordinate. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're thinking about this question. Yeah. It's like how do we continue to have this dominance in, in communication? Um, and it you know we saw it play out in the Ukraine war um, mm. where part of Putin's early strategy was to get rid of the communication network for the Ukrainian military's, the Ukrainian armed forces commands. And 
I've read that they weren't able to do it largely because of Starlink. Right. Um, right. So I guess that's a W for Musk. For Musk. By the way, that question was from Alex H., not Magic Tecker. Yo, um, the, um, I think that maybe we need to rely just as, uh, you know, we're going to see the climate uh, cause all sorts of acceleration, whether we like it or not. Maybe we have to rely on Comrade Sunspot. We have to rely <laughs> on, right? Because if like the electric magnetic waves or whatever, that like there, there has been talk of if we had an event like we had in the 19th century where like a great uh, expulsion. Yeah, of, it could happen. You know, maybe it can knock out all the starlings and that's yeah. how we'll get free. But it like, has to happen eventually. But like... I think that there's the tantalizing, um, I don't know, um, option out there that something like the internet can be used to like truly unite people across borders and across languages. And that like the internet, um, at least in a revolutionary or post-revolutionary situation could be used as a way of like, basically like self-managing, um, what's what we would call now the economy and uh, decisions writ large. But I'm not sure that that internet would look necessarily like the internet we have now. And if people have um, ideas or conceptions or articles or short stories about what a communist internet would look like, I'd be really interested to, uh, to check those out. In the meantime, if you're in tech, what do you do? I mean, I think if you're in tech and you're a commie or an anarchist, I think uh, you should be doing what anybody in any other industry does, which is like finding uh, people who feel the same way in your industry, uh, keeping in touch with them, reading with them, organizing with them, and uh, get ready to maybe fight in the same ways we were talking about on a regional industrial basis. Maybe we should have done the fun questions first, but we got some fun questions too. Um, Here's one uh, that's more historical from Volani. Volani, friend of the show. Good to hear from you. People online get all uh, worked up about what was or wasn't the most historically progressive, but what's your spiciest, most historically regressive pick before 1900? Can be an individual, can be a movement or a phenomenon, whatever. Uh, Spiciest take? Spiciest, most historically regressive is... uh in 1492, Columbus sailing the ocean blue. <laughs> is I that spicy? Historically regressive, yeah. No, I mean, like, the Columbian exchange and, like, the opening up of the New World and the primitive accumulation. But wouldn't that capital. have happened eventually? What if it happened the other way? Oh. You know? What if, like, um, I don't know, the... the Inca, hot- Spain? Yeah. What if the hothouse, uh, like, proto-capitalist uh, imperial... Uh, Europe wasn't the one that actually made it over to the new world. This is a back to Kim Stanley Robinson in years of rice and salt. You know, I think that you, I, I would argue that 1492 was probably the most historically regressive um, moment in world history. What would be yours? Well, now that I'm reading Settlers, I'm thinking about like the Knights of Labor and the, you know, the post-Civil War <laughs> labor thinking, movement. You're thinking <laughs> of the IWW as the most regressive. <laughs> well, that's post-1900, so. Oh, true, yeah. 1905. Yeah, but it definitely seemed like there was a moment in U.S. history where there could have been um, a real reckoning with the question of race. Yeah. And it was, uh, you know, it was something that was weighed within the labor movement, within the federal government, and they decided to put the question off. Mm. And uh, that question has been the driving force of regression. You know, I would say, like, for, uh, for me, within my lifetime, the most regressive has been Blue, uh, Blue Lives Matter and law and order politics mm-hmm. in general. I mean, that goes back to the 60s. Um, but just the ways that uh, anti-black, specifically racism, continues to be coded as a mass social movement mm. uh, and as a, you know, both to keep black people uh, as the most exploited and as an underclass um, to, to continue segregation by other means, um, but also um, as a means of being prepared for any kind of leftist or communist or worker revolution because those things are pretty transferable. Like mm. you say, like, uh, you know, the idea of uh, the George Floyd uprising was a, uh, a coalition between Antifa and, and like gang members to burn down all of the cities yeah. is still fresh in the, like all these anti-authoritarian militia groups 
quickly become on the side of the federal government and suppressing uh, working class revolt uh, as a result of that bizarre alliance between uh, people who hate the state but also love the police. So you would argue that in the 19th century, like around uh, Reconstruction, presumably, that there was a real opportunity to like overcome this divide within the class and that the failure of that was like the most historically regressive thing in in world history? Um, maybe in world history. Maybe. Yeah. I mean, the, the what happened in the United States is very important for the progression of world history, yeah. for sure. I, maybe, yeah, maybe world history because the American model and American domination and American capital in the subsequent century goes off to have such a huge effect on, on world history that if America, if this country had, um, the working class of this country had found a way out of that, it would have uh, been completely different, presumably. Right? I guess the question would be like, you how ideological had- was that choice? Was there any other, uh, but you know, Du Bois makes it seem like it was a question that was debated and the solution was that it was um, either too political a question or that uh, the inclusion of black workers would be too much of a threat to white workers. And so black workers had to organize separately their own unions that could be simultaneously controlled and excluded mm-hmm. um, from a labor movement that was controlled by whites. Uh, and, you know, you, you certainly see the ramifications of that um, after World War II when, with, like, the failure of the CIO. I've been reading Mike Davis's Prisoners of the American Dream, oh, so yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's fresh on my mind. The whole question is, like, why isn't there a labor party in the U.S.? Why, yeah. why was there never a socialist movement in the U.S. like in other countries? Uh, and it's... It seems like he, he roots everything in that failure. So. Yeah. I've, I tend to agree with Mike Davis on that. So that's a good answer, I think. I hope that my answer was okay. All right. We got a, a few more questions, and we'll do that on the other side of the paywall. Other side uh, of the paywall. And we might have some fun reading as well. So if you want to listen to that, we always appreciate your support. Go to patreon.com slash the Antifada and sign up. Uh, you can do it for $5 a month. Or you could do it for a year for a discount, and we always really appreciate that. And you'll want to um, subscribe this month because we have some great content coming down the pipe. We're, I'm doing another big episode with uh, Varn next week. We're going to finish our uh, first principles, and we're going to talk about uh, the goings-on in the DSA and elsewhere. We're going to uh, try to tackle the question of what is to be done. Hell yeah. I love those Varn episodes. Yeah. And uh, also, if you sign up, send me a, a DM with your mailing address and I'll send you a postcard from stickers in the mail. Thanks, everybody. See you on the other side of the paywall. See you there.